Father, I want to thank you for the anointing on my life to declare the gospel. Daddy, how fun it is. How rewarding it is. How awesome it is to not be ashamed of Jesus Christ. To not be ashamed of the power of the gospel. And Father, I'm always reminded when those that you preach it to, when they don't receive it, they first didn't receive you either. and They didn't receive the disciples either. But some will. And Daddy, so we thank you for those hearts that are hungry to receive this message in Jesus' name. Father, may you stuff their hearts full of the glory of God and the grace of God and the love of God and the hope of God and the gift of God and the faith of God in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to minister for a little while this morning to a message I'm calling Forever Forgiven. As the Holy Spirit began to create that word in my heart this past week, there were times I got very emotional. And it wasn't so much just from the content of the message itself, but it was from the title that he had given me. When I would look at those words, forever forgiven, they did something to my heart. They made me rejoice on the inside, but it was tears of rejoicing. I have that revelation, I'm forever forgiven. Under the old covenant, that was an oxymoron. Under the new covenant, it should be, this is who we are. At the same time, when I would occasionally ponder just at the title, Forever Forgiven, it made me teary-eyed to think there are so many believers who do not believe this. Not that they haven't heard it, they just don't believe it. That's because they're under an old covenant mentality, which was sin by sin, confession by confession, works by works, lamb by lamb, sacrifice. The whole time, the Holy Spirit is shouting, if you will, No, no, you are forever forgiven. A man cannot fully rest until he has discovered the blessed assurance that all of his sins, past though they be many, present though they be few, and future that they be unknown, he cannot rest until he has discovered that all his sins have been washed away by the precious blood of Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, we find these words. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed. I want you to look at that word redeemed. It literally means purchased. It means to be bought out of slavery. So God says it was not with silver and gold that you were redeemed. From what? from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. In other words, what he's saying is when the covenants changed, the old covenant was an empty way of life. It was a works mentality. And Jesus is trying to remind us here that, listen, you have been purchased out of that old covenant. You've been purchased out of that old mentality into a new way of life and a new way of thanksgiving. And how did he say he did it? With the precious blood of of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. What I want you to see through this message this morning is that our benefit package found in Psalm 103 and our promise of everlasting life found in John chapter 3 are not distributed to us because we are good or because of good performance. They are given to us because God is good. Our benefits are for life, therefore we can declare we are forever forgiven, and we are forever blessed. In Psalm 103, it's one of my favorite psalms, we find our heavenly benefit package, if you will. 
If you start a new job, if you're going to get benefits from that new job, they're going to give you a handbook that describes and outlines all the benefits. The one thing I was thinking about is with heavenly benefits, with the benefits that David is talking about in Psalm 103, there are no deductibles. There are no coinsurance payments. There are no co-payments, if you will. There are no exclusions. There are no limits. And there is no expiration. There's no annual renewal. You know why? Because in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22, the Bible declares that the mercies are renewed by the Lord every morning. I don't renew my benefits. He renews my benefits every single day. Makes me happy on the inside, I'm telling you. His mercies are new every morning. So you would think, I guess, if you get a, a manual that thick for your insurance benefits, God's manual for all the benefits he's covering must be quite the manual. But David summarizes it in four or five verses. I'm like, really? He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And listen to this, and forget not all his benefits. And in four verses, he's going to tell you all the benefits of God. How can he do that? Well, I'll tell you the first one. He says, who forgiveth all thine iniquities. Iniquities are the worst sins you can imagine. They are twisted sins. So he's not talking about the petty stuff, the jaywalking and the chewing gum in church. He's not talking about those kind of things. He's talking about some of the most twisted, foul things you can do. And he says, he forgives all my iniquities. Oh, that makes the Jack LaLanne come alive inside of me. I'm not kidding you. He forgives all my iniquities. And here's what I felt the Holy Spirit say. God, how come the list is so short? Well, here's the deal. When you get this revelation that you are forever forgiven, all your iniquities, just like the scriptures say there, have been forgiven by God, past, present, and future. When you get that revelation, all of that is forgiven. Guess what goes with it? Fear goes out the window. So often growing up in my Christian walk, I was kind of afraid of God. I wasn't afraid of man. I know how to use these. I wasn't afraid of man. I was afraid of God like I'd done something wrong. 14 years ago, I had an ache in my back and the doctor started looking at me and said, I can't find anything wrong with you. Maybe you've sinned against God. He said, maybe you feel like you've sinned against God. I looked at him and said, no, no, no. And all those, at that whole time, I'm thinking, this guy might have something here. You know, I didn't know where he was going with it exactly. But you know what? Every time growing up in the church, you did one little thing wrong. You were just repenting for a week. David's under the old covenant. And David has this revelation that all my iniquities are forgiven. And when you get that revelation in your heart, guess what goes out the window? Fear, condemnation, guilt, shame. You just go ahead and write it in there. He's just summarizing the category, and it covers a broad spectrum of what God says, this becomes your benefit. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, and then he says, and heals all. I love that word again. He says, I heal all of your diseases. We've got to grab a hold of that. I don't care if it's the Hong Kong flu, the bird flu, the Asian flu, or the swine flu. It doesn't matter. It all falls under this right here. He forgives all of our iniquities. He heals all of our diseases. That's good preaching, Pastor Mark. Hallelujah. He forgiveth all thine iniquities. That's the first time I've ever said that. All thine iniquities. He healeth all thy diseases. I'm only saying what David already said, what God told him to write. And then the Bible says, he redeems our life from the pit. He redeems our life from the pit. You know, there was this thing uh, on Yahoo this week of this little cute puppy that was trying to crawl out of this ball pit. I don't know if you saw it or not. 
But you know what I'm talking about, the ball pit that kids play in. And they set a puppy in there. He's so cute. Every time he steps on a ball, the ball moves. He's trying desperately. I'm thinking pretty soon, I'm going to watch. Come on, hurry up. Come on. Get out of the pit, dog. Get out. He can't get out of the pit. The more he tries, the deeper he gets in the pit. That's how it was with us at one time. It was like we were in this ball pit of sin. And the more we tried to get out of it all by ourselves, the deeper we just kept getting into the pit. We felt so clumsy. We, and every time the puppy got a new win, he thought he would try it again. He couldn't get out of the pit. And God says he redeems. He buys you out of the pit. He purchased you out of the pit. He said he redeems you from the pit. And then he says he crowns you. I love that because you know what? It's more than just a little certificate for my wallet. He doesn't just say, here, let everybody know that I got you out of the pit, okay? Let's maybe just put an embroider right here on your shirt that says, God redeemed me out of the pit. No, he said, listen, I've got something better. I'm going to crown you. I'm going to crown you so that the whole world can see I bought you, that you belong to me, that you're royalty. I bought you out of the pit. He redeemed me from the pit and crowned me. There he says, he crowned me with loving kindness. That word loving kindness is the Hebrew word chesed. It literally means the grace of God. He crowned me with grace. Oh, man, wallow in that for a little while. He crowned me with grace. What else could he crown me with? He crowned me with grace and tender mercies. And, of course, tender mercies literally means compassion. That God is a merciful God. He's a gracious God. He's a compassionate God. And then he satisfies my desires, the very same desires that he gave me. He satisfies those desires with good things. Oh, good things. You know, one of the good things he gave me was Valerie. The Bible says when you find a wife, you find a good thing. Oh, he gives me good things, not bad things. Any bad in your life is not from the hand of God. Yes, he'll get you out of that ball pit, but all the bad things are from the evil one. All the good things are from God so that your youth is renewed like that of the eagles. That's quite a benefit package, isn't it? Amen. Who wants to meditate on Psalm 103 now for a little while? Amen. I would encourage you to go home and just keep meditating on that. He's forgiven all my iniquities. He's healed all my diseases. Come on, it's in the word. All my diseases. He's redeemed my life from the pit. He's crowned me with loving kindness and tender mercies so that we can just sit back and say, he satisfies me with good things so that my youth is renewed like that of the eagle. That is our benefit package. The promise of everlasting life is found in John chapter 3. Verses 14 through 16. Jesus said these words, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And of course, I know we've been down this road before, but let me remind you of what that truth is right there. When Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt into the wilderness, they started complaining. And God sent poisonous snakes to bite them. It sounds kind of mean when you think about it, but it's really not. Listen, if you got a child that's got some sort of virus or something like that, and you say, you got to stay in the house all day long, you can't go play with the kids, that's not being mean to their friends. It's about quarantining, and, and when it comes to sin, God had to quarantine it and stop it. He sent fiery snakes to bite them, but God always provides an answer. He provides a way out. He provides a cure. And so he had Moses put up a pole signifying the cross right in the desert. And he said, make a brass serpent and hang that brass serpent on the pole so that once they've been bitten, they can come. And all they have to do is look upon that brass serpent. You see, brass in the Bible is a picture of judgment. 
Brass, everywhere you see it, always symbolizes judgment. And so what they could do is they could look and they could say, my judgment has been placed on the pole. My judgment has been placed on Christ. Do you get the picture? You see how it's working. Everything in the Old Testament is just a type and shadow of what we get today as part of our benefit package. And then verse 15, that whosoever believeth in him, that's Christ, should not perish, but have eternal life. So the word eternal in verse 15 and the word everlasting in verse 16 are the exact same Greek word. Then in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Our forgiveness is based upon one thing and one thing only and it is the secure and eternal truth that by faith alone you and I have been placed inside of Jesus, the one that loves us like no other. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, not next to Christ, not on Christ, not under Christ, not above Christ, but if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. That's the thing that we've got to understand is that you have become a different species actually. Spiritually speaking, there's something so brand new about you. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are passed away. All covenant theology, everything should pass away. Behold, all things are become new. About a week or so ago, I had to call Dish Network. I, we have Dish Network at home. I had to call Dish Network about something. And as I was talking to the man on the phone, listen, I look at every opportunity as an opportunity to minister. You keep me on the phone long enough, you're going to get it. I'm telling you. And I don't beat anybody over the head. They're going to get the message of grace. They're going to get the message of God's unconditional love. And the man was soaking it up. He wasn't saying anything. And at the end of the conversation, this is what the man said. He said to me, your habits have worked to make you a good person. I said, stop. My habits have not worked to make me a good person. Jesus Christ is the one who made me a good person. Now my habits will make me a good steward, but Jesus is the one who made me a good person. And he immediately said, you know what? You're absolutely right. <laughs> he is the one that made us a good person, isn't he? Absolutely. The gift of eternal salvation was first typed and shadowed in the Old Testament through a man by the name of Noah. I'm going to plow some ground. I've been down a little bit before, but listen to the heart of God. Noah experienced what we have today through a type and shadow of what we call the ark. It's just a picture of God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. That's what the ark represents. Now, it took Noah one hundred years to build the ark. I have did a few construction projects in my life. I'm not an expert at this, but I know a little bit, okay? And I know when you begin to work on something, there are some golden rules. There are some carpenter's rules, okay? Beyond just put on the safety glasses. One of the ones I'm very mindful of when I'm building something is the carpenter's rule of measuring twice, cutting once. You ever heard that rule? Measure twice, cut once, because if you cut the board six inches short, there are no board stretchers, okay? You just got to start all over again. So here's my point. A good craftsman, and Noah would have been a good craftsman, will check and double check their work. Does it at least stand to reason when Noah cut the hole in the side of the ark for the door, and then he had to make a door, does it stand to reason that Noah would have made sure that the door fit? I mean, does that make sense? I mean, that it fits snug too, right? You don't want it one inch short, right? You want that door to fit snug. You want it to seal tight. It would have made 
total sense that he would have at least checked it. And as I was meditating on that thought, although Noah would have been physically capable of shutting the door on the ark himself, if nothing else, he had Ham, Shem, and Japheth, his three sons, the four of them could have done it. If nothing else, he had an elephant. Just tie the door to an elephant and close it, okay? Although Noah in his own strength could have done this, he was not commissioned by God to close his own door. What we see there is God wanting to teach all the generations to come that he alone was qualified to lift the door from its horizontal position to its vertical posture. Are you starting to see the picture here that I'm talking about? Look at Genesis chapter 7, verse 16. Two by two the animals came, male and female, just as God had commanded. Then the Lord, God closed the door and shut them in. God shut the door on the ark. God's the one that did that. Now we're in Genesis. Let's fast forward all the way over into John, the Gospel of John. Remember, God is the one who brought the door from the horizontal position up to the vertical. And then in John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus just can't contain himself anymore, and he has to reveal this. He says, I am the door. Do you notice that he doesn't say, I'm a door? He doesn't say, I'm one of many doors. He doesn't say, I'm even the good door or the best door, the preferred door. He says, I am the door. Again, the word the in the English is a definite article. It means the one of a kind. It means the one and only. All through John chapter 10, he's talking about being the great shepherd. The whole chapter is about being a great shepherd. It's about a shepherd and his sheep. It's about him and us. And he's reminding us, he's saying, listen, I want you to always remember that I am the very same name that belongs to God. I am God is the door. He's the door in the side of the ark. Jesus said, I'm that door. And only my father could raise me from the dead and put me back into the ark and seal it with the Holy Spirit. I want you to picture this. I began to let this picture grow in my heart and grow in my mind as I was meditating before the Lord. Jesus, the vertical man on the cross, and then he dies, and he falls like a kernel of wheat into the ground and becomes the horizontal man. But after three days... The father resurrects his son back to the vertical position. You see, friends, when Noah and his family walked into the ark, the door, again, was in the horizontal position. But once in the ark, or the way we would say it, once in Christ, once in Christ, the door has been lifted up by God himself. That same door is Jesus Christ, and he seals us. In Christ, he sealed them away from judgment and wrath. They didn't experience judgment they didn't experience wrath, but everybody outside of that boat did. God is trying to say to us, when you're in Christ, there is no wrath. There is no judgment. Now, Noah was in the ark for a total of 378 days. You say, Pastor Mark, where do you get that at? I'll tell you where I get that at. The Bible. See, the Bible records things. It will say, for example, for 40 days and 40 nights, it rained. It will say on the 150th day, the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat. And so when you keep adding all the times together, and it lists them all, when you add them all together, you have 378. You know, I thought, God, why not just round it off at a year? I mean, come on. Why is 13 more days than a year? I mean, you know, aren't you into rounding things up or rounding things down? We do that kind of stuff. Take a penny, leave a penny. I mean, come on, what's the big deal? Everything's important in the Word of God. Every single detail. Names are very important in the Word of God. Numbers are very, 
very important. The number three signifies complete. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Are they complete? They are very complete. Now watch what happened the day Jesus was crucified. The Bible says he was crucified at the third hour. It was nine o'clock in the morning. From six to nine is three hours. He was crucified at the third hour, meaning it was the perfect time for him to be crucified. Not one day more, not one day sooner, he was crucified at the third hour. At noon, the Bible says, from noon till three, judgment fell on the earth in the form of darkness. The Bible says gross darkness came upon the earth. And from noon till three, boom, condemnation, boom, fear in Jesus. All of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our sin, all that judgment was being poured out on Jesus. Then he died. And they put him in a borrowed tomb. And for three days, he laid in the grave. Oh, but then he was resurrected, praise God. He was resurrected. The number three means complete. The number seven means rest. We see that so easily in the Bible. God made everything that we see in six days, and the Bible says on the seventh day he rested. The number seven means rest. You also have a man named Noah, whose name in the Hebrew translates as rest. So you can see that God's message for all mankind has always been about rest. Even when Jesus was on the cross in this posture like this, he had his arms open as to say, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, when I see my little grandchildren and uh, someone I haven't seen in a while and I really want to give them a hug, I start hugging them before I get to them. Do you ever do that? You start making the move before you get there. It's like, hey, man. So when Jesus stretched down the cross, he was just saying, this is what I'm saying. Come unto me. It's the invitation. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly at heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Number seven means rest. The number eight, it means a new beginning. See, God did everything in seven days there, and then as we step into the next day, the number eight always represents a new beginning. So, Noah's in the boat, 378 days. And I want you to see this. When you put those all three together, complete rest in the new beginning. Just hidden, really, just barely under the surface. That God is saying, listen, I want to come and I want to give you complete rest. But in order to do that, we're going to have to have a new beginning. Remember, Noah's Ark is a typology of Christ. And it was picturing what would come thousands of years later. Under the Old Covenant, you only rested when you felt like your sins are forgiven. And it's really the way believers are today. If they can't understand that they're forever forgiven, then they're resting here and there. They're resting when they feel like they're on top of the world and not when they're not. In John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, it says this, After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life. And I love this. He's about to define what eternal life is. It's better than Webster's Dictionary. It's better than the Britannica. It's better than anything you could Google search. Jesus said, let the author of life tell you what eternal life is. 
He says, eternal life is this, that they know you, Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You say, Pastor Mark, that just sounds too easy. Did he want a universal plan? A plan that no matter if you were rich or poor or smart or, or not so smart, that you could come to him. You know what? All you got to do is know the only true God. In other words, put your trust in the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Wow, we are forever forgiven. And then he says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work. Did Jesus say that? These are his words. He said, I finished the work. Quit trying to finish his work. His work is not the, hey, listen, don't pray for the sick anymore. No, he's not talking about I finished that work. We still have a work to finish. He's not talking about don't send missionaries all over the world. No, we still need to do those kind of things. He's not talking about not raising the, he's talking about finishing the work, which is to propagate the message that all you have to do is put your faith in the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, go and preach that that is the gospel. You are staring at the gospel. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Friends, the benefits that David talked about in Psalm 103 and John talked about in John chapter 3 are not plugged into a heavenly clapper. Okay? Come on, how many people in here remember the clapper? I mean, I don't know how old the thing is. I remember seeing the commercials when I was young. But it's that device that plugs into the wall and then you plug in things like a lamp or a fan or a radio or television. Remember the picture of the little old lady in bed and she's got the lamp on and finally she turns from one side to the other side and realizes the lamp is on and she just claps a couple times and the lamp goes off. The clapper, do you remember the clapper? Well, there's so many people out there that think that somehow our heavenly benefit package is hooked up to the clapper. In other words, when we're good... God claps on mercy. When we're good, God claps on grace. When we're good, God will clap on his love. When we're good, God will clap on his forgiveness. When we're good, God will clap on healing. But friends, let me tell you something. If you've been naughty, if you're on his naughty list, that clapper that clapped it on is the same clapper that's going to clap it off. So he's going to clap off mercy. He's going to clap off grace. He's going to clap off his love. He's going to clap off his forgiveness. And in rare situations, you know what? He's even going to clap off your salvation. God is not, got us hooked up to a heavenly clapper. Oh, you'll probably wake up in the middle of the night one of these nights and clapping in your bed thinking, hey, praise God, I'm not hooked up to the clapper. God the Father is always pleased with us. Amen? The Father's always pleased with us. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 29, these words, the one who sent me is with me. He's saying, my Father is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Jesus was affirming in that statement right there that he first heard it from his father because when he was in the Jordan River and the heavens opened, he heard the majestic voice of his father saying, this is my beloved son in who I am well pleased. And he says, listen, my daddy's already told me I'm well pleasing. We're in Christ. We are in Christ. So when the daddy looks at us, he has to look through the darling of heaven and he says, you know what? I am so pleased with you. You know, it's not always that our performance is right spot on, but God looks beyond the exterior man. He looks upon the heart and he says, this heart belongs to me. This heart belongs to my son and I am well pleased with you. 
a couple of days ago, I think it was Friday, I wanted to Google something. What are the last words of some of the most famous people that have died? There's a lot of them out there. But the one that intrigued me the most was the ones that were spoken by Leonardo da Vinci himself, that great painter. This was one of the most brilliant men that ever lived. He was a mathematician, he was a scientist, he was an inventor. He was the one that painted the Mona Lisa. And he was also the one that painted this picture. That picture right there, the Last Supper it's called, has had more pictures printed from it than any other painting ever made. And when it came to the end of his life, these were his last words. He says, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. See, friends, I'm going to tell you something. That is the same message that Satan is trying to speak into our ears and our hearts every single day. Your work's not good enough. No matter what you do, it's not good enough. Yes, it is good enough because everything I do has to filter through Jesus, and Jesus is the one who makes it good. Under the new covenant, it's the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that makes the difference, and we are always pleasing in God's sight. Jesus is the one that we get the blessed assurance that we are forever forgiven. Jesus said these words in John 10, 28. He says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never, never perish. I'm going to give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one, no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. And guess what? You are included in the group of no one. I want you to see through this message today that our covenant with God is not conditional, it's eternal. Jesus has been telling us that over and over. He's saying this is an eternal covenant. This is not a conditional covenant. Yeah, but you say, Pastor Mark, you can forfeit your salvation. Really? Let me ask you a question. How can you give away something that doesn't belong to you? In other words, if I was to walk outside and try to give away my neighbor's car, it wouldn't go well for me, would it? You say, wait a minute, something that doesn't belong to you. Next scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. And he says, you were bought. That's that word redeemed again. You were bought with a price. You were bought out of slavery. You were bought out of sin. I've redeemed you from the pit. I've crowned you with loving kindness and tender mercies. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Friends, I'm going to just say it the way Jesus put it in my heart the other day. He says this, you didn't purchase salvation, salvation purchased you. Amen. (laughs) Salvation purchased me. Salvation purchased you, mama. Salvation purchased you, papa. Salvation purchased us. You say, Pastor Mark, you don't know what I've done. I've crossed the lines. I've rebelled against God at times. It doesn't matter what you've done. I know the word. And the word says in Daniel chapter 9, verse 9, these words. To the Lord our God belong mercies. That word mercies right there has said, it means grace. To the Lord our God belongs grace and forgivenesses. Though we have rebelled against him, to the Lord God belong grace and forgivenesses. What would be the point of God having forgiveness? He doesn't need it on himself, it's for us. To the Lord God, and he shares this with us because we're connected to his son, Jesus Hallelujah. You know, the last time I ministered, I began a series called Our Inheritance, and this is part of that series. 
And the purpose of that series was to put us in remembrance with the incomparable riches that were deposited into our accounts the day that you and I put on the Lord Jesus. We are much richer than even our lifestyles portray. Amen? The first message that I preached from that series was called A Rich Inheritance. And the essence of that message showcased the wonderful truth that our promise of a rich inheritance is activated by faith in God. I want you to remember those words, faith in God. Jesus only used that statement one time in the Bible. He said to his disciples while he stood, now listen to me carefully, while he stood in front of a withered fig tree, have faith in God. It literally translates as, have the God kind of faith. Have the faith of God. Have God's faith. He said that standing in front of a withered fig tree. You would have thought that Jesus would have waited for that one. That's a bomb of a truth. Here, have the faith of God. Have the faith of God. You would have thought that he would have waited till he was on the highest mountain in the world under the canopy of eagle's wings to release something so powerful and so majestic. Have faith in God. But no, he was standing in front of a cursed and withered fig tree when he released the words, have faith in God. You see, friends, it's easy to have faith in God when you're on the highest mountains of life, when everything is going well, right? When there's no health crisis, when there's no issue with your finances, it's easy to have faith in God then, when your sea is calm. But it's exceedingly more challenging to embrace those words, have faith in God, when you're standing in the presence of death when you're standing in the presence of disappointment, when you're standing in the presence of depression and despondency and darkness and despair and disconnection and destruction. The enemy wants us to put our faith in everything but God. He wants to keep us from the revelation that we are forever forgiven. When that truth really begins to set up in your heart, I want to tell you something. You're going to find everything you do has a sense of power and expectation and excitement and love and blessing when that truth begins to really cook in your heart. Jesus was powerful because he knew his father loved him. He laid down the heavenly armor when he came to earth. He only did what his father told him to do, and he did it with the power of his father working through his life. He was a man. Too many people see God as their rent-to-own manager, and having a background in rent-to-own I understand this field. I worked in it for 15 to 20 years. I was the account manager. I was the guy, if you didn't make your payment, it came to your door. The concept of rent to own is you get to keep the product as long as you make payments. You get to keep what's in your home based upon your performance. If you perform well, you'll get to keep this product. But if you don't, it will get repossessed. God is not in the repossession business. God is in the possession business. He wants to possess us. He wants us to possess Him. He wants us to see His glory and His power and His might and His love. We can trace Satan's misguided tactics all the way back to the Garden of Eden when there the serpent convinced Adam and Eve to put their faith in a tree in the middle of the garden. Satan seduced Adam and Eve into believing that God was withholding something and that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil could satisfy them. That tree in the middle of the garden could make them wise. That tree in the middle of the garden could make them like God. They were already satisfied. They were already wise. They were already like God. The enemy will always try to give you something that you already have. 
We can't keep trading away all this stuff, you know, for what's behind the curtain. We already have what's behind the curtain, and his name is Jesus. The curtain, the veil was torn. Jesus came out, and he said, you've got me. The curtain is there no more, okay? When Jesus stood with his disciples in front of the withered fig tree and said, have faith in God, I believe that he was pointing them all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The New Testament hadn't been written yet, because that's where you see the fig tree mentioned for the first time in the Bible. Very significant when a word comes up for the first time. Jesus is teaching one of the most awesome lessons standing in front of a cursed fig tree and he's saying have faith of God. Have faith in God. Let's go back and look at those scriptures in Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now how many know the three statements she made, she got two right and missed one, 66% is a failing grade. How many know that, okay? That's an F, okay? You can't add to what God's already said. God didn't say you couldn't touch it. But I'm going to tell you something. You start entertaining the thoughts of the enemy. You start entertaining anything that's outside of the Word of God. It will bring confusion to your mind. You won't know where you stand. The serpent said, you will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. If you were to take a survey among people, in fact, in your own mind right now, if I was to ask you, you don't have to say it out loud, if I was to ask you what kind of fruit do you believe it was that Adam and Eve had eaten from the garden? You got your fruit? Many people think it was an apple, don't they? Bible didn't say anything about an apple. I was at work the other day and I texted a friend and I said, what was the fruit that Adam and Eve ate? Fired it right back, it was an apple. It's weird how we think it was an apple, isn't it? It doesn't say it was an apple. I fired a text to another guy and said, what do you think? said the same question. He said, a bad apple. <laughs> okay, okay, doesn't say a bad apple either. I fired one to another guy and you know what he said? They didn't eat any fruit off a tree, they ate the snake. I'm thinking, at first I thought it was kind of humorous. I thought, you know what? That's about right. They ate the garbage that was coming out of his mouth. They ate the message that was coming out of his mouth. But why do we always think it was an apple? It's weird. Let's look at verse 6 again. But now we'll add verse 7 to it. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now watch the very next verse. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They didn't wait till they got back home to find a fig tree. They were standing, I believe, right in front of one, the very tree I believe that they ate from. Throughout the Bible, we see that fig leaves are a symbol for self-righteousness and man-made religion. Because what man has wanted to do for centuries is he's wanted to cover himself. No thanks, God. Every person you minister, try to minister to on the street that says no thanks to Jesus, what they're saying is, I think I'm a good person. I'm already covered. I don't need anything else. I don't need the blood of Jesus covering me. I'm already covered. He's got fig leaves on. It's man-made religion and self-righteousness. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful 
that because I don't own myself, that Jesus owns me, I can't have a crazy moment when I trade my robe of righteousness for an apron of fig leaves, okay? I'm so thankful. You see, if you take a little child, a little four or five-year-old child, and they have a quarter in their hand, and you reach in your pocket and you go, I tell you what, I'll give you two of these big shiny nickels for that quarter. You know what they do? (laughs) Two's better than one. I've seen it happen. I wrote a check out one time when my son Tanner, the youngest son we have, when he was about four and a half, five years old, I wrote a check out to him for $1 million. I literally, to Tanner Testament, $1 million. Now, he doesn't know how much money I got in the bank. I gave it to my son. About a minute or two later, I reached in my pocket and got a shiny penny. And I said, son, I'll tell you what, I'll give you this penny if you'll give me that check. (laughs) There was no hesitation. You know what? If you try to do that to a little child, if he's got a quarter and you're trying to give him two nickels, he would do that. He would think that's a better deal. Unless mama, of course, was standing by. See, mama's already done the calculation. Mama realizes 10 cents doesn't equal 25. That's a bad deal for you, son. And so God, when he sealed us, he sealed us away from all these bad deals that the enemy is continually trying to offer to us. So that's what the fig leaves represent. And I believe it's important to understand the imagery that Jesus was imprinting on the minds of the disciples when he said, have faith in God or have the God kind of faith or have God's faith. Let's look at that story in Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 14. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves. Remember, leaves are symbolic of self-righteousness. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. As a believer, there is no way for you and I to be able to go back to the tree that was in the middle of the garden, that cursed tree, and eat from that tree again because we are in Christ. I'm not saying you can't commit sin. I'm not saying you can't go out and do something to get you in trouble. But I'm saying when it comes to that spiritual situation, there is no way for us to be able to get back into that same situation as Adam was in. Now, jumping up a few verses in Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 19. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look. You can just hear he's wanting to say, oh, that is so cool. Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And this is where Jesus said, have faith in God. Have the God kind of faith, Peter. You see, the fig tree appeared to be religious and righteous, but underneath all of that self-righteousness, underneath all of those leaves, there was no fruit. You say, yeah, but Pastor Mark, what about me? I don't know my ministry. It doesn't seem like it's bearing much fruit. Listen, the fruit of the Spirit lives inside of you. Jesus said, I'm going to give you the fruit of the Spirit. That's the fruit he's talking about. He's not just talking about all the stuff you go and do. Yeah, that's a type of fruit too. But he said, let me tell you the nine fruits that I put inside of you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, meekness, faithfulness, self-control. He said, I've already put that fruit on the inside of you, okay? Amen. The Pharisees appeared righteous. They appeared like they had it all together but they were without the fruit of the Spirit. The patriarch Abraham had a relationship with God that was grounded in faith. That patriarch Abraham's relationship with God was based on faith. The main difference, though, between his relationship and our relationship is Abraham romanced the shadow. We romanced the substance, and his name is Jesus. 
but it's a covenant that he didn't come up with, so if he didn't come up with it, then we know it's by grace, right? And he activated the covenant by faith, same way we do today. You see the picture? Amen. The Bible chronicles for us in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham was justified. That literally means declared righteous. It means he was placed into a state of innocence solely by faith. It wasn't faith plus. It wasn't faith times. It wasn't faith or. It wasn't faith and. It was by faith alone that Abraham was justified. No contribution on Abraham's part. Faith alone. So when you look at Romans chapter 4, and I would encourage you to spend some time there because right when it comes out of Romans chapter 4, talking about Abraham justified not by the law but by faith, then it steps into that wonderful chapter, Romans chapter 5, where it unveils the same powerful truth that you and I are in covenant with God, justified solely by faith. Why is it important to know that? Here's what I want to say in my descent here. I want to take you back to Adam here for a second. The Bible says one act of disobedience. One act. God said, Adam, here's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You cannot eat from this, or the day you eat from this, you will surely die. That is a conditional covenant that Adam has with God at this point. Because God is saying, there's something off limits. There's something you cannot do, Adam. If you do this, it's going to change everything. And it did. It injected sin into the world. It injected sickness into the world. It injected poverty into the world. It took Adam and displaced him out of an awesome place called the Garden of Eden and put him on the outside of the Garden of Eden. It changed everything. It even created death in his own body so that Adam would ultimately die himself. That's what happened through one act of disobedience. Now let's fast forward a second to Moses. Moses, the great man of God, that great patriarch of God, takes the Israelites, leads them out into the desert. They start complaining because they're thirsty. And Moses says, God, they need water. And God says, Moses, I got an idea. That rod you're holding in your hand, you see that big rock over there? Go strike it. And he strikes the rock with that rod and the cascading fountains of the deep pour forth to be able to water two to three million of people and their livestock. What a good God. What an awesome God. And then, down the road a little ways, not terribly far, the same thing happens. Everything's dried up. All their reserves are gone. They start complaining. And Moses says, God, they're complaining again. He says, I want you to speak to the rock. And Moses thought, well, the first time I struck the rock, it worked for me. And he disobeyed what God said. So when Moses struck that rock again, you know what God did? God still honored his goodness. And he still watered the people, even though Moses was in disobedience. Moses only did that one thing in the desert. And you know what it cost him? It cost him his ability to walk into the promised land. Moses died shortly before they entered the promised land, and Joshua had to take him in there. So we see that these acts of disobedience were pretty severe. Moses didn't lose his standing with God. You say, how do you know that for sure? Matthew chapter 17, the transfiguration. Jesus is standing on the Mount of Transfiguration, and two other men appear to him, glowing next to him. One is Elijah, and one is Moses. It wasn't his eternal life, his eternal salvation, but it cost him his promised land, and that's what sin does to us. It costs us something in this world. It doesn't change your status that you're right with God. You are always right with God. You are forever forgiven with God. I don't look at Adam as my father, and I don't look at Moses as my spiritual father, but Abraham. The question becomes, did Abraham do everything right? 
No, he didn't. There was a time in Genesis chapter 20, he's standing in front of King Abimelech. And King Abimelech has this enormous harem of women. And Abraham is very concerned because Sarah is a knockout.com. And so Abraham says, she's my sister. And so what King Abimelech does is he takes her into his harem. But in the middle of the night, King Abimelech has a dream. God gives him a dream. And he basically says, you are a dead man if you don't give back this married woman. He tells him in the dream, she's married. King Abimelech knows enough about God to realize this is serious business. So he calls Abraham and Sarah the next morning to stand before him. I think I would have done it right there in the middle of the night. But he waits till the next morning. He calls Abraham and Sarah to stand before him. He makes him give an account. What have you done? Why would you try to do this? Why would you try to bring this death and, and punishment upon me and my people by lying to me? Can you imagine Abraham? Well, I don't know, you know. I don't know what I was thinking. But watch what he did. He said, you know what, Abraham? I'm going to bless you with sheep and cattle and donkeys and men servants and maid servants. He said, guess what else? He said, in the land of Gerar here, he said, wherever you want to camp out, wherever land you want, all that's yours. And he says, guess what else? He said, I'm going to give you a thousand shekels of silver. So you got to ask the question, was God blessing Abraham's disobedience? No. Here's the thing that I was mindful of. Because I used to work people over with these scriptures years ago in Revelation 21.8. In Revelation 21.8, it talks about eight different types of people that will be in the lake of fire someday. And the first one it names is the cowardly. Would you say, would you go with me for a second and say that Abraham was being a coward the day he said, she's my sister. He did not want to face Abimelech. He thought he was going to die. The reason he said she's my sister because he thought he was going to be killed. The first one in that group is the cowardly, and the last one in that group it says all liars. But we know Abraham's not there, is he? So we know that his covenant, the covenant he has with God, has protected him and has sealed him. And this is really cool. As he's standing in front of Abraham and Sarah, these are the last words of King Abimelech to Abraham and Sarah. He says to them, you are completely vindicated. You know what the word vindicated means? It means justified. The same message of Romans chapter 5. Do you see how God has woven into his scripture? He said, you are completely justified. And then I had to do this this morning. I had to look up what Abimelech's name means. His name literally means father of the king. I'm like, God, there, it could have said anything there. Are you kidding me? The father of the king said, you are completely justified. If we would get that message, what was he saying? You are forever forgiven. You're completely justified. It literally means you are right in my eyes. You are declared righteous in my eyes. Aren't you glad that our relationship is not patterned after Adam or Moses, but it's patterned after Abraham? You see, when Abraham and Sarah stood in front of King Abimelech, you've got the father of faith standing there, and Sarah known as the mother of grace. Father of faith, mother of grace, the very same way you and I become saved, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace are you saved through faith.
and the Father of the King is telling you that. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are, have the faith of Abraham. And then watch what it says three times. He is the father of us all, talking about Abraham. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls them to be in things that were not. In closing, I want to say this. Under the new covenant, again, we are not patterned after Adam. We are not patterned after Moses. We are patterned after Abraham. It's a covenant of grace through faith. And there's no richer inheritance than to know and to have the blessed assurance that all my sins, past, present, and future, have been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. I step into that heavenly benefit package that David talked about in Psalm 103 when he said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, and healeth all thy diseases, who redeems my life from the pit and crowns me with loving kindness and tender mercies. He satisfies my desires with good things so that my youth is renewed like that of the eagle. Therefore, with an awesome truth like that in place, you and I, no matter where we're at, no matter what we've done, no matter what we thought, we can always stand with this wonderful truth that the Holy Spirit is trying to convey to the entire world. We are forever forgiven. Father, I want to thank you for this word today. What a simple truth hidden just under the very surface of your word. Daddy, I'm just so thankful that we have this blessed assurance that we are eternally secure. We are forever forgiven. Jesus himself said, nothing and no one can snatch you from the palm of my hand. Daddy, I'm going to stand on the side of you and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. The world can say whatever they want. Ministers can say whatever they want against this message of grace. But I see it threaded throughout the word. I see what happened in Abraham's life. And I see that that covenant came over because you yourself declared him the father of our faith. Daddy, we thank you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.